Hello and welcome to Africa Tech Summit Connects, sharing insights from across the African tech scene. Hello and welcome to today's show. My name is Andrew Fastage, founder of Africa Tech Summit. In today's episode, we're exploring the future Web3 across the continent and everything that that entails. And I'm delighted today to welcome Christian Duffus, a serial entrepreneur, a future whiskey entrepreneur. We'll get to that later. <laughs> and the CEO and founder of PhoneBank. Welcome, Chris. Hey, thanks for having me, Andrew. So a lot, a lot to unpack, Chris, but um, I would love you to take us back to the start in Jamaica. <laughs> so I was born in Jamaica many years ago. My dad was an exec at Esso or Exxon uh, for many. And uh, my mom was a, a home economics teacher at one of the local high schools. And like many emerging markets at the time, you know, you have your sort of multifaceted economic environment and and people. And what I always was fascinated about was how that there is this parallel economy in dollars and the Jamaican dollar. Mm -hmm. And it's just something that sort of stuck with me as a child. And then once we moved to the States and came back, that disparity became even more great. And I would always remember my dad saying I, that he brought as many dollars as he could because he could get great deals on uh, our vacation by paying that way. You said when you moved to, to America, I think you'd lost over a very important, interesting snippet there. Was there not was some way you, you had to get out of Jamaica really quickly? <laughs> yeah, there is that, right? Uh, some of the work that my dad did... And I can neither confirm nor deny this, uh, but like many sort of young professionals in emerging markets, he was an economist uh, and he did a lot of research across the, the Caribbean. And this was a unique time in the development of the democracy and political ecosystem of that country, as well as the Caribbean as a whole. And uh, there was an article about him that was published in the national newspaper one day stating that he was performing the certain types of activities that other CIA operatives had uh, wow. performed before the overthrow of these respective uh, Central American countries. And Let's pack the bags. <laughs> yeah. Quickly. And over in the middle of the night, I remember um, I went with him and we had all our stuff in a container carrier and we actually shared a uh container uh shipping container with uh peter tosh uh i believe and the next morning we were on a flight uh to the, miami from jamaica and i thought you're gonna say you're in the shipping container i was like wow this is this is real yeah. uh james bond stuff no here. but i mean many many people in jamaica at the time it was the early late 70s early 80s mm -hmm. there was a, a big brain drain um, to the to the states, uh, and as a result, you have many Jamaican Americans that could have been quite impactful within that economy that ended up in the United States, uh, you know, and and this has generational impact. So much so that you know, interestingly enough, many of the 
the the the current and prospective, you know, uh, heads of state, they do a lot of their campaigning and fundraising in the U.S. Uh, you know, as they are running for office. So the reason I wanted to go back to Jamaica is I, I just really wanted to understand how is how is your time maybe growing up in the Caribbean shaped your your, your business mind and, and and the areas that you've gone into. That's, that's a great question. Uh, while I've done okay for myself, you know, I'm you know I wouldn't necessarily call myself any type of you know total bootstrap like many of us. I, I've been able to ride on the the shoulders of of many other of my my relatives, especially my father. Um, but what I also realized that there's this huge disparity in people's lives, and I had family in uh, the not so nice parts of of Kingston. And that were impactful to me. I, that's, you know, we're talking about childcare early mm-hmm. on. I remember spending time with my aunt B after school every day. And she lived in an area near what's called trench town in Kingston. And I would have chicken soup and dumplings for, for my afternoon snack and play with the kids and, uh, you know, throw things at the goats, uh, you know, as I, um, as I grew up. And so I, I know, I, and I've seen how folks live and, you know, one of the things that, you know, the, the vivid memories of, um, of how, and, and then how diaspora might communicate with one another, how we go back and forth, how we send money back and forth, um, how it's important to do that, right, in people's daily lives. And then even I recall as um, we might visit back that some of the, the biggest employers in my time period, because I grew up before mobile phones and computers were the, the norm and definitely smartphones, but every year we'd go back to Jamaica and every year that the advertising for the mobile carriers became more and more preeminent and the financial institutions as well. Right. But literally the second you got off the airplane, you were inundated by adverts from Digicel or flow or, you know, whatever the, the local carrier was. Um, and so those are the types of things that have made an impression upon me. I think that's, I don't know if that's where you were going in this. Well, yeah. I mean, I just think it's fascinating growing up in that environment and then, you know, Moving to the U.S., you know, big differences and, and I suppose culture shock and moving moving to bigger cities and things. But also, you know, you're a serial entrepreneur, and that I sorry, I think that that term gets bandied about very easily, a lot. Um, but <laughs> yeah. what 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 I what I see the difference with you is you've had exits, and that I think is a you know that that that's a real barometer of of a level of business that that, that you've got to so. You know, did they, did the experience in in Jamaica move to the U.S. help in those businesses, or what were those businesses that you started first? So, m- my dad always built stuff, and he whether it was uh, he was he was handy around the house. Uh, he had this perspective to my mother's chagrin that he would never hire a handy a handy person to come in. He tried to always do it himself. Um, he actually had, and this you'll find this interesting, a Scandinavian furniture 
business using Jamaican mahogany wood, uh, which was you talk about a, a differentiated business. Joy um, Kia. That was <laughs> Joy Kia is that, what you should have called it. Exactly, exactly, <laughs> right? And that that was uh, that was his side hustle in Jamaica, and uh, the it was built so well, and you know it's wow. mahogany, right? This was this was his pitch. It's mahogany; it'll last forever. Well, we we had that furniture literally until the day he died about ten years ago. Wow! Uh, that he had in his his house. They're great great pieces. Uh, very striking design. Probably would be uh, very in style now. Uh, and so from that, I've always sort of thought of myself as a as a builder and taken solace in tinkering and having uh, some type of um, sort of challenge that I wanted to create something that was sustainable to address that. One of my one of my first uh, ventures was a not for profit when I was in high school. And it came about after discussion with one of my uh, uh, high school uh, uh, sports um, uh, teammates. And he was concerned about going to college. And we were both in honors classes. And he got a better grade in our uh, pre-calculus class. And I'm like, man, like you could get a scholarship. And he didn't realize that that was an option for, for him. And both my parents ended up getting their PhDs uh, after they left, after we left Jamaica. And so I always had that expectation that I was going to college. And, and so I started this student organization designed around getting disadvantaged um, kids that weren't part of that sort of college matriculation path, uh, college bound. And it was so successful that we've had, you know, over, and this is, Tens of years ago, I'm not going to go into to that, uh, but uh, uh, we've had uh, near over a hundred thousand kids that have participated in that program with nearly a ninety percent um, uh, college matriculation rate, and it ended up getting taken over by the local university down there, Florida Gulf Coast, as their sort of um, uh, college uh, pipeline program within the community. So that that in many respects was my first exit. And I think where you're getting at is it's, it's about building good product, mm. right? And that's why where people, even after you leave, they'll see the quality of what you've done, the relationships that you've developed. And that's the type of thing that most people, as they think about sort of their careers and development, you know, you essentially have like, Hey, I, I, I now created something that will allow you to accelerate your MBO you know, and get your bonus for the year uh, in a nice, neat, nice, neat package. Yeah, I mean, the thing I picked up from 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 reading some of your, your background was, you know, building stuff that's almost like a source for good um, and having a, having an ethos um not maybe chasing it, chasing the, the trend. Um, and looking back at all that, and now we move into, you know, phone banking. You can tell us more about phone bank. But, you know, do you think that those previous businesses have, have, have led you on this path towards what we're doing now with phone bank? Yeah, uh, def- definitely. Um, I think part of, that, part of that foundation is making a, an impact in people's lives. And while I was always interested in finance and uh and the application of, of uh, technology 
to that. What sort of the, the driving part is like, and this is goes back to like building a good product, understanding who your customer is and make and, and fundamentally making it an impact in, in their lives. And it, it's not necessarily complicated. It's not easy. Easy as digging ditches. Simple as you've done something for tens of years and you know how to synthesize it really well. But fundamentally, what's, what's driven me is, is that sort of, uh, how can you make a difference? How can you provide people with the right set of information, um, that they can make decisions for themselves and, uh, and many businesses, business people kind of forget that, you know, people can't be sold, uh, or at least that's sort of my, my thesis is, and regardless of who you are, whether you're a highly sophisticated financier or a, uh, an underbanked or unbanked consumer, I don't, I don't start with the consumer is stupid. They don't know what they want. I, I, I start with the exact opposite of that and that, they're highly sophisticated and their decisions might not be things that everybody are used to, but they're, they're a complicated sort of decision criteria. But if you can provide that transparency, rectify that information asymmetry that might be persistent in the market, uh, and build a good product to deliver that, you know, customers will find you. you well, that brings you nice time. <laughs> yeah, and that brings us nicely on to phone bank. So, so tell us more about what phone bank is and what it's doing. Sure, sure. I'll I'll start with our formation story. Um, you know, as you'd mentioned, I was a, you know, I founded a, and exited a couple of businesses. I sold my last business to a publicly traded fintech called SoFi in the U.S. My first business in the U.S. We uh, enabled the U.S. Treasury Department to accept payments online from citizens. Um, and then I fell into this, the rabbit hole of, of the blockchain and started a, a small, uh, micro investment platform, uh, that allowed people to, uh, uh, invest small amounts into, uh, their favorite crypt cryptocurrencies. Well, but along the way, and also, you know, when I wasn't doing payments in fintech, I'd actually spent a lot of time in wireless, uh, spectrum, networking, uh, worked with some of the leading minds, entrepreneurs in that space over a decade. And one of the things that I'd always sort of been interested in was figuring out a way to, uh, to create an organic, uh, payment rail that actually lived within the mobile carrier, uh, business operations system. Right. And, uh, when I heard about it, and Pesa many years ago, I was enthralled by that, uh, that model. And I'd actually never seen the, the app or the service in, in person. And serendipitously, my, my brother-in-law a couple years ago went to Kenya and came back with a, a Safaricom SIM. And after he told me about it and what he could do, I was like, Hey brother, come come on over. Let me see this thing. I want to see how it how it works. And so we plug it into my phone, and wow. it registers on T-Mobile. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wow, it it works. And we see that there's a balance remaining. And it had been a month or two since his vacation, so he thought it had expired. 
but it had some random expiry date of like 2037. And we got to talking more about how you, how he paid for his bar tab with M-Pesa and, uh, and other sort of, uh, daily transactions, coffee, et cetera. And that how he could even, he, um, uh, ran out of funds, but had, you know, all this, this, this money loaded on his, uh, on his float, loaded on his phone, uh, cause he wanted to upload photos for Instagram and, and, and the like, uh, that he, he actually paid someone, uh, in transferred airtime to them and, uh, and how people still kind of use that as a, a sort of currency equivalent, maybe not as much now as it used to be at one point, but it still, it still had that type of, uh, economic benefit. And uh, the reality is, as a, stepping back for a second, like mobile data, people are much more judicious with it, it across sub-Saharan Africa, as well as many other emerging markets, but specifically sub-Saharan Africa, because um, the cost per gigabyte is like three to five times higher than it is in the West and what we're used to. And so uh, people are very sort of conscious about spending it. Um, but but sort of finish, finish the story, uh, he... He bet me that I couldn't resell this this balance at the time as like uh, a thousand shilling or so back to someone on the ground in Kenya. So I quickly devised this hack where I took out some Facebook ads targeting people on the ground in Kenya that liked M-Pesa and Safaricom. And actually, uh, surprisingly, a couple days later, I got a, a bill from Facebook. I had <laughs> actually forgotten about this thing. was going to turn it off. And I realized a couple of people had responded. And I quickly so what invited was in them the in. ad? Uh, it was just like, Buy, get access to discount airtime uh, uh okay and be somewhat you know something something really really simple called action right and um i just invite them into a whatsapp group use the m-pesa uh account and safaricom sim and transfer the airtime they paid me back on m-pesa and that was sort of the genesis of what phone bank is today and i would describe as a bridge to to web3 targeting these mobile first cash-based economies using prepaid airtime and other uh, familiar mobile payment types as a tokenized medium of exchange and where we use stable coins as that sort of bridge into all the leading L1, L2 protocols. So talk to us more about that. So you're now linking the airtime to stable coins. Um, how is that working? And, and, and explain the benefits for people who may be not aware of Africa's complexities, currencies, devaluation, inflation, and, and the importance of stable coins. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, one of the interesting facets of trade on the continent, however big or however small, is people still use the dollar or use the dollar, not even still, as a primary sort of settlement currency. Um, and as we think about, you know, where the world is, what consumers um, or demanding, regardless of where you are, and if you're, and call it 18 to 35 year old uh, con consumer, with the prevalence of the internet or availability of the internet, many people want the same thing. They want to access services online. The problem is that many of these are dollarized and out of, and as a result, out of the reach of uh, many everyday Africans. And so, if it's not zero rated, like a WhatsApp, meaning it's free access um for your carrier it's it's uh out of reach if you have to pay for it especially if it's small amounts just because those are not economical and so what 
using prepaid airtime as well as other sort of familiar um, uh, mobile transaction services uh, does it, through our platform is we can provide that sort of uh, frictionless, immutable, dollarized payments for digital goods and services. And we do this, and this is probably one of the areas that makes us unique is, um, you know, you think about like, who is an airtime counterparty, right? Well, it's not, it's not MTNs, it's not Safaricom. It's these little shopkeepers, which is in many, many cases, the backbone of retail commerce uh, across the continent, who are the counterparties. And they've been doing this. It's a gray market in the same way that I uh, won that bet selling airtime back. Uh, uh, you know, these, these are actually, you know, in retrospect, these are the people that bought it. A couple, couple young people that had a shop that saw this and wanted to capitalize on the opportunity, right? And so we, we've tapped into this sort of, uh, existing set of behaviors, markets, productized it and evolved it into a way that makes it economical. And the benefit being, um, we can now provide cross-border dollarized micro payments across the continent from uh, East Africa to West Africa uh, to South Africa uh, and enabling this connection between Africans and the rest of the world for all the daily digital services and products that they might want to consume in the same way we in the West can do that. And just on that point, so, I mean, some people listen to this podcast all over the world. They don't really understand, you know, why are these people not just using cards? Why are they not using Google Pay? Can you just quantify the the opportunity with micropayments in Africa and why it's why it's such a such a great um, sector that you're targeting? So there's tons of friction around it, right? So one of the challenges with Apple or Google Pay is and and card payments in general um, is uh, card penetration is actually relatively low, right? Uh, especially when it comes to credit cards, right? Debit cards a much broader penetration, but still a relatively small percentage of uh, population still. Um, but the carriers figured this out over a decade ago where they're like, hey, I if, in order to get paid, I have to set up this network uh, a, of agents and shops so we can we can grow our business. Well, they also realized that, oh, well, I'm now sitting on this cash. People have pre-funded the float. I can now convert this into a type of payment service, you know, as a way to sort of grow the pie. And, um, you know, and what's, what's the different about that compared to the card networks is it doesn't require a bank account or a traditional, a, a, a bank account in the way that we think it does in, or, or that is evolved in the States. And so this is, it's almost more like a, a gift card type program in terms of how it's structured. And so the funds are already there. The, the payments are immutable. So they're not subject to, to fraud. Um, uh, and chargebacks, which kill a lot of merchants, especially for digital goods services, uh, trying to go to market in, um, uh, globally. And just because the, the dispute resolution is, is hard and, you know, the, you don't necessarily have credit bureaus and all the same types of uh, sticks, you know, and carrots that you might have in, in the West for sort of uh, proper um, participation in these types of programs. 
And, you know, then to throw in, you have these uh, uh, currency control monetary policy systems that don't allow uh, merchants to repatriate funds easily. Or if they do, like in the case of Nigeria, you know, there's an official rate and there's a, uh, a commercial uh, parallel rate, and it might be 20, 30% delta, right? And, you know, if you're a large carrier uh, or a, a merchant, that might uh, significantly impair your profits. And then you throw in fraud uh, as an example, uh, you know, another factor, it may not then be worthwhile. And so payments using stable coins is a much better uh, effective way to accomplish these types of transactions. You know, the challenge is that someone described to me in the payments landscape, you have sort of remittances, you uh, which are cross-border, but usually like from the West to many emerging markets, you have your... Uh, traditional sort of payouts, and this takes the form of these these cards, but as I indicated before, it's still a relatively small uh, population type. And then you have sort of the pay-ins, right? And that's really the hard part. And that's where sort of we come into play and sort of our unique model around aggregating liquidity uh, in uh, local markets across the continent with various types of providers, whether it's prepaid airtime or mobile money, um, allow us to provide this real-time conversion uh, for this category of trade payment across the continent, which may not be economically viable otherwise. We're going to take a short break. After the break, we're going to have a deep dive with Chris about future trends, which markets he sees are most exciting across the continent and also an offer from PhoneBank for all our listeners. Stay tuned. Join us at Africa Tech Summit Nairobi in February, where African Tech connects. Please visit africatechsummit.com forward slash Nairobi for more details and receive a discount off delegate passes. Welcome back. We're delighted to say Chris will be joining us in Nairobi next month at Africa Tech Summit Nairobi. Um, and for all the listeners who are listening today, PhoneBank have kindly given everybody a 20% discount of Delegate Passes. So simply enter the code on Africa Tech Summit forward slash Nairobi. Uh, when you go to register your pass, enter the code F-O-N-B-N-K and you will get 20% off courtesy of Chris and PhoneBank. So that's F-O-N. BNK, put it into the discount code field when you're registering your pass and you'll get 20% off and you can meet Chris yourself. And next month, you'll be able to hear about the whiskey story, which we'll keep on the wraps <laughs> for now, but it's coming. He's got some He's got some Scottish in him as well. So there's a, there's a good whiskey story coming. Anyway, Chris, fascinating uh, so far. Um, if we take a deeper dive now into... You know, what markets are you seeing currently? Uh, what, what's exciting you across the continent for people maybe who aren't, aren't as a fay with different markets and, and some people will be more a fay, but, you know, which markets are exciting you now for phone bank as a service and what are the corridors that you're seeing in terms of trade and, 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 and adoption? So, um, uh, you know, for obvious reasons or maybe not so obvious, uh, you know, I look at Nigeria as a, a pretty exciting 
market in terms of uh, innovation. Um, and uh, but I also see, you know, still see Kenya remains quite innovative. Uh, South Africa is an area where they've been very progressive in their reg regulatory environment. And that's really what I'm, I'm, I'm concerned with about sort of fintech acceptance, uh, as well as even crypto regulation, I think is, is in frameworks are really important, but also sort of the, um, sort of participant type, type companies. But, it, you know, to me, uh, what I'm really most excited about is linking uh, cross-border payment, not necessarily to the West, but across the continent. Um, one of the things that I think about on, on every flight I do across um, the continent, uh, country to country from, you know, going to the, the summit is how large, uh, how massive uh, it is to travel um, and it's fascinating, really, isn't it? I mean, when you go across lightning storms in one part, you see forests. I mean, it's it's a huge continent. Yeah, I mean, to me, one of the the most magnificent opportunities sometimes is, you know, I might schedule my flights accordingly, is that I can take a day flight, right? And mm. you can see this look out the window, know, this huge topography beneath you, and literally, mm. as you said see mountains you can see desert forest all in one view mm. right mm. if there aren't a lot of clouds one day from 35 36,000 feet um and you probably can't get views like that any other place in the in the world but and unlike the west what you don't see are is the same type of uh human infrastructure around roads bridges city the cities in the same way um and that's to me sort of the opportunity and and probably the only industry that has sort of gotten that or and made that capable is the telecommunications in industry where you can now have this sort of global cross-continent and cross-continent sort of uh, uh, uh infrastructure to enable commerce right and that's where I think, you know, many of us entrepreneurs and why fintech is such a, a big deal on the continent is we see that linking that is, I think, fundamental in the economic development and um, uh, making the rest of the world accessible uh, for, for trade with, with, with Africa. And again, it's one of those things I see with, with Jamaica, but Jamaica has... You know, this great infrastructure we have, uh, at least from a telecom standpoint, there's fiber lines directly from, you know, that that come in. Uh, the same is true across the continent, but it's a small island. You how do you get the same type of infrastructure? It's one thing to to set up a fiber ring around the continent, which, again, my mind is just blown at like the scale of that. But it's been done many times over. But how do you get it across the continent? Right. Uh and, you know, do we need, are there, is there a need of like cross-continent railroads? Is like, there's, I, I just think there's so, still so much opportunity for innovation. I was chatting with someone the last time I was at the conference and, I'll, 
you know, he'd mentioned this, this concept of like, uh, 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 dirigibles or, um, airships as transport solutions for cargo where you don't have to, you know, build roads. It could, and it could travel done. It's relatively slow speeds, large amounts of cargo. It could even be automated with like, um, a drone. And yeah, these are the, these are the types of innovations that you're probably going to see, uh, uh, on continent sooner rather than later, just because there aren't alternatives. So, I think even if you look at Zipline, I mean, Zipline kicked off from Rwanda. Yeah. And before it got its US licenses, they did everything in Rwanda, delivering blood products to, to hospitals. And um, everybody thought it was a bit, bit crazy at the time. But now, you know, we're looking at drone delivery for Amazon and brands. And, you know, Africa has always been that kind of innovational hotbed where where you know technology can't really solve a problem not just another delivery app or you know a laundry app it's actually real logistical issues so you you bring up a great example of uh in innovation right in that uh it literally is zipline is literally saving lives right and and so you know this goes back to your earlier point about like what's driving phone bank and what's driving me. We did an early project um, in Malawi after the cyclone a number of years ago where we worked with this not-for-profit NGO that provided uh, uh, doctors uh, and we received donations and they were paid out in airtime directly to the doctors on you know, in, and medical staff in the field. And um, uh, what was great about it or unique about it in that, you know, as they provided this budget, the primary expenses were sort of the labor, transport, and communications, right? Communications, the third largest expense in an outreach activity, disaster relief activity like that. And we where ultimately like we were able to get uh tens of thousands of dollars in the hands of these doctors and they could communicate freely they could share data with patients so they didn't have to revisit the the doctor with like long queues and and travel in the process and you know that's where this type of infrastructure i think is 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 uh can can potentially save lives or and we can do it at, at minute levels. Uh, I remember another time where we we're doing some testing and uh, we sent out literally a penny to someone and that in Uganda, that was the equivalent of like 30 Ugandan shillings and the minimum top up at uh, for MTM there was like 10, 10 shilling, right? And so, mm. you know, there's no other payment type rail or network that you can utilize that can enable that type level of, 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 uh, of payment. So, um, like I said, to, to answer your question, the really to me, what's excites me is it's, it's a huge problem and it's providing this type of digital infrastructure, uh, around payments that removes friction. And because of that, it, it makes, uh, commerce accessible to everybody. Right. And that's, that's what you need. Like, and going back to my j times in Jamaica where I might have, 
had a dad that worked at SO. I'm in Trenchtown. There are smart kids, little kids everywhere. We both have young children. Uh, you know, I want to give every one of them the, the opportunity to mm-hmm. change their lives, right? And that starts mm-hmm. with being connected to the, the global mesh to be able to gather that information, to gather that education, to run any type of business that they might want. I mean, you know, we talk about micro payments, so, you know, it's a mass, you need, you need mass volume. How do you, or how have you been finding in terms of achieving scale in Africa and, and building in different markets? How have you found that? What's been challenging or, or, or what, what do you feel has worked well? So this is where like um, removing, removing complexity out of what I would describe as a um, uh, very complicated set of processes that can be orchestrated in a nice, neat package. And by delivering that to merchants that now can, they can do a single integration, whether it be no code or uh, low, low code, and now get access to this broad market where they can provide uh, service to these, these these new consumers who might ordinarily never have access to. And so as you think about like, uh, you know, that, that benefits sort of not just local consumers, but local businesses who want to also sell across continent, uh, but also global players who want to enter this, this market. And to your point about gaining traction, like we, we've evolved in that we we're not, we're more of an infrastructure company now and we support merchants that have uh, existing user base, whether it's uh, wallets uh, that are seeking on-ramping services or uh, digital goods service providers, specifically in like, you know, uh, video games or media uh, who would like to get paid. And then even any number of NGOs that provide all types of unique services to their, to their end client clientele. So you got a pretty captive audience in terms of payments across the continent. Yeah, yeah. Again, we strive to be so super simple. Like if you can use WhatsApp, you mm. can use phone bank and start accepting um, dollarized uh, Web3 payments using stable coins. And we support all the leading L1, L2 protocols so you don't have to change any technology or if you're familiar with a particular type of wallet or infrastructure it could be integrated or not um that's up to you as the as as the as the developer or and you and you don't need to be a developer to use this um and i think we are you know that that's sort of the key to our success we want to be the the easiest uh most simple uh uh value transfer network available across all of africa today so crystal ball, future trends. We work five years from now, you know, we're talking about stable coins and on phone bank. What other services do you think could come on or, or where do you see the company going like in, in, in say five years? Say you get the traction, everybody's on using it for payments. You know, what what other exciting stuff do you think you can do? So one of the things that, that people aren't I don't think aren't are talking about as much as they should is this concept of sort of on chain FX. Um, and really what we are is a type of democratized access to stable coins and an enabler of this movement for on-chain FX. 
And so what I mean by that is stable coins, dollar-based stable coins are just the first example. There's actually a lot of innovation um, on continent now of sort of uh, uh, stable coins pegged in different currencies, whether it's the Naira or Kenyan shilling, uh, Rand, uh, you, you name it, right? And be, the, as this technology evolves, it's easier to create uh, these these products or assets. You're going to see more and more um, of that come available. Uh, I do I do see a role of central bank digital currencies per se, but I also see them, uh, you know, as in many respects, like clearing or settlement layers as part of this on and off ramping within these markets. And, uh, and once, once money takes this form, it's significantly more fungible and can be layered into any number of different applications. And I think, uh, the country's behaviors across the continent are, are, are more likely to evolve this way than actually many Western, um, uh, consumers. But, uh, part of my big thesis is this convergence between the application and, uh, the finan- and financial aspects of it or fintech, right? And that, to me, that's a big deal and big aha about fintech and why it's so, so prevalent is everything's going to have a financial layer on it, right? If, mm-hmm. if cost, if timing of payments, if, you know, uh, you know, promotions, things like that are big drivers of consumption. Well, you can create a financial layer to address that. Right. And, and I think the more that we can do to remove that friction, the more consumers, businesses can be participate at global scale on equal, on equal footing. Um, and so, you know, stable coins, whether it be private stable coins, which, uh, you know, there's going to be more stable coins than, than not. You're going to have central bank stable coins. I think Africa is many of the economies and are leading the way from an innovation standpoint with that. Um, just because it's a very, very practical tool to create this type of financial infrastructure. And you're also going to see more on, and as a result, more on chain FX activity. Uh, that's a business that is in many respects quite outdated. And in the same way that, um, you see stock trading, uh, having gone into high frequency and automated with bots. Well, definitely you're going to see FX that way. And we, you need that in order to remove many of the, the transaction costs and competitiveness of many of these local, local currencies. And, and as a result, you know, you put your consumers and your businesses on a more level playing field that globally, or just, you know, within your, uh, the, the continent and economic trading, trading zone. So you've exited a number of businesses. Yes. Do you ever start the business thinking of an exit? And, and my next question is, you know, I know you're only on starting this journey with phone bank, but 
you know, what's a potential exit look like for phone bank? And this is more for entrepreneurs listening who are building these businesses in terms of, you know, they get so ingrained, building, head down. Um, but sometimes you do need to have it. Okay, how do I exit stage left eventually? Or, you know, so wh- where would you see phone bank going eventually? And, 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 and how would you potentially exit that business? So the way I look at it and how I get into it is that um, and maybe makes me unique and annoying to my wife is that I, I see this problem, I feel this problem, and mm-hmm. I just can't sleep until mm-hmm. uh, I address it. And even today, outside of phone bank, I have many different things going on in my head and like, oh, I could solve this this way or that way. But yeah. um, not until I can sort of the rubber meets the road in terms of the idea. Yeah. Uh, can I turn that into a business, right? Like in many respects, phone bank, even before the the bet with my brother-in-law was catalyst, I've been thinking about something like this for maybe over a decade, right? But I couldn't put it all together in the same way. Um, but when I when I did, I was just, you know, the 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 fire in me is is lit and I can't stop until um I can I can put it out somehow. But with phone bank, I see a multitude of corridors that this could go into, whether it be, um, you know, this whole convergence between application and payment. Well, what larger application than mobile telephony, right? Mm-hmm. And converting that into a, a global currency, um, you know, or uh, as you then think about sort of payments, well, at FX, there's this whole now world of um, uh, on-chain FX that providing consumers democratized access to can be really powerful and merchants, you know, that you put everybody on an equal footing and, and to, to trade. And so part of this is, you know, and then with that, like, I'm only one person, we're a small team, um, and why we've kind of gone the way that we have in terms of building infrastructure where other people can use it so sim- super easy uh, that I want to be, I want to wake up one morning and be, you know, and find out that phone bank is being used in some, you know, vi- viral new game or uh, a new type of application that I hadn't thought about. Right. And so, and, but that can only be done if by removing, removing barriers, making it super simple um, obviously there's constraints within that, but, uh, but I think that that's the pathway to, to innovation is I, I, w- I want this next generation and the generations after that, uh, and people that have really unique use cases that might not be obvious to, to others around the world, but very important to them within their country or their region, and they can make an impact. So before we wrap up, we've got two two quick questions, and this is probably more for for some of the founders who are listening here and and, and trying to understand how to build a business, exit a business. But um, your number one lesson for others in raising capital: how hard is it to raise capital, and what, what would your number one lesson be for for people? Right now, we've got a lot of startups who are challenged. Uh, VC is is shrinking in some markets, and 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 funding is drying up. I think um, it, this is it, it, sort of a, my perspective on an old adage is that ideas are a dime a dozen um, where, where 
the rubber meets the road in a startup or idea getting funding is is traction. Traction is a very nebulous thing, but I I think about it, I break it down into these little tests, right? And you know, my first nugget, which I shared, is really sort of the the formation story of phone bank of this bet with my brother-in-law, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that was a test. That was a micro test. That was a form of traction. Um, and as we evolved and I thought about it more, we we validated commercially, meaning that people paid us, again, another form of traction, um, uh, various steps and aspects of our business. And even internally, as we bring a new product to market, some of the discipline, uh, we have my partners, the, the first, you know, uh, sort of person that slows me down in this effort. He's like, what's a business case? Show me, let's do a test to validate this concept. Who's going to buy it? Like, let's get someone to pay us for this. And then we can add this, codify this to, to build, right? And we've never been in an easier time to create a uh, digital business. And I think the costs are going lower now with, with AI, right? And um, many African founders are the benef- beneficiaries of this low-cost global infrastructure. Again, assuming they can get access to it through, they can pay for it, right? Um, but uh, build into your funding plan these validated milestones uh, that are commercially focused that demonstrate product market fit, right? And what you'll realize as you go out and raise money for investors, regardless of your phase, but, you know, more so on the early stage, is people will be really impressed. Like, oh, it's not just an idea. They were able to execute, right? They have a methodology of how to go to market. They can take scarce resources and um, optimize for that. And these are the types of things, you know, we might see at a market with some local entrepreneur. Uh, I see it in my my uh, family members in Jamaica that I grew up with, um, and. And, uh, and I try to espouse those things as well. Like many ventures don't need to be full time. It could be a side mm-hmm. hustle. You know, the actual same is true for a funded company, right? Before you actually fund it, you should make it a, a, a side hustle before you go out and see if you can raise more money around that, right? Um, uh, but, or at a minimum, like have those different proof points that you can, that you can build on, um, and I think those are really important to to driving financing, regardless of the stage. And obviously, there's things like, you know, uh, fun- fundamental drivers like, you know, can this be profitable? Is this profitable? What's your path to profitability? I think those are always those those never were not important, right? And especially for African founders. Uh, but I do think stepping back, like, you have to test. You have to have a very methodical way in which you go to market and uh, investors see that and and care about those types of things. And my last question, are you raising capital yourself? Yeah. Uh, you know, while we're while we're actually pretty well funded, um, you know, part of this is my 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 uh, entrepreneur strategy and is build a great product, 
uh, get in early, keep a low burn, and hang on for dear life, right? <laughs> and so uh, we have a unique model that, you know, I believe we're simplifying, we're making better, we're getting a lot of traction. Um, and, you know, it's, it's evidenced by some of our, our partnerships. Like recently, we just signed a large grant with uh, Ava Labs and for the Avalanche protocol where builders that work with our products will get entitled will be entitled for user uh grants and so that's actually one of the things that I'm, i want to talk more about it at the conference but um uh we have a unique model and so to the extent we were always looking for potential investors partners whether it's uh uh strategic or financial uh, i think about it as like how can we accelerate our growth how can we, you know, build, add new features, services that we didn't have before, access new markets, new, new products, right? And so that's, that's kind of how I think about sort of new investment right, right now. We've been blessed, uh, to have the capital, to have the runway, uh, and we are, you know, driving towards uh, break even in a sooner rather than later time period. Uh, and I'm, uh, you know, but like I said, we have a, my philosophy, l- low burn, long runway, hang on for dear life. Uh, you know, and that sort of the paranoia in me in terms of building the business. But, uh, if there is someone that's crazy and passionate about like what we're doing and t- at the intersection of, uh, telecommunications, uh, cross border FX and the blockchain, I'm happy to talk to them, right? This is what I live and breathe. And I'd encourage anybody to and be excited for them to join our journey as a as an investor or partner uh, to that end. Well, on that note, I would say anyone listening who wants can, can meet Chris and his team at Africa Tech Summit in Nairobi in February. Um, you can bring your checkbooks. Chris will be standing by with a coffee and waiting. Um, but it's been an absolute pleasure, Chris, uh, listening to your story. And um, we're excited to have you back with us again in Nairobi. And as I said, anybody who's listened to the pod can get 20% off courtesy of Phone Bank. Use code F-O-N-B-N-K. And to find out more about Phone Bank, you can go to www.fonbnk.com and download, download the app. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, we look forward to seeing you in Nairobi. Safe travels. We'll speak to you soon. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. To hear our latest episodes, please subscribe to our channel on your favorite podcast app. You can also visit africatechsummit.com for our upcoming events and news.